You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 84 by Rudolf Steiner, his last public lectures, entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum, 11 lectures translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 9, entitled Supersensible Perception, Anthroposophy as a Contemporary Need, given in Vienna on the 26th of September, 1923. Anyone who speaks of supersensible worlds nowadays lays themselves open to the very understandable objection that they are out of tune with the needs of the times, and that science can only engage seriously with the biggest existential questions by remaining aware of its limitations, retaining clear insight into the fact that it must restrict its inquiries to the earthly sense world and would succumb to fantasy to some degree if it were to exceed these restraints. In fact, the school of spiritual science that I described at the last Vienna Congress of the Anthroposophical Movement, and which I wish to speak of again today, not only does not feel itself to be in conflict with the scientific outlook and scientific conscience of our era, but, on the contrary, seeks to work absolutely in the spirit of the most rigorous modern scientific inquiry. We can, however, speak in a variety of ways of demands that we now encounter as a result of the magnificent theoretical and practical developments over the past three to four centuries, especially the nineteenth. Today, therefore, I want to speak of supersensible perception insofar as it seeks to meet these contemporary needs. And then, in the following lecture, I will speak about supersensible knowledge of the human being as a need of the human heart, of our human soul and sensibility in the present era. Right up to the present moment, scientific research has produced magnificent results in its inquiries into conditions and phenomena in the outer world. Yet we can also speak in another vein of the achievements granted to humanity in the course of such developments. You see, very particular capacities have developed in association with serious scientific observations of the laws and facts of the outer sense world. Observation and experiment have in fact shed a light also on human capacities and faculties themselves. But many who are immersed in the most worthwhile way in scientific inquiry tend to disregard this light shed upon human beings themselves in the course of these investigations. If we reflect for a moment on what this light illumines, we will find that human thinking, studying through microscope and telescope the laws of minute, detailed phenomena, as well as grand and far vistas, has also gained enormously in its capacities of discernment, in its incisive power to connect things in the world in such a way that they disclose their secrets and reveal their underlying laws. And as this thinking has developed, 
we see how a challenge has come to inform it, one posed, at least, by the most serious and dedicated investigators, a need for this thinking to become as selfless as possible in observations of external nature and in empirical trials in laboratories, clinical research, and so on. In this regard, humanity has gained a great power, increasingly succeeding in ensuring that inner human desires do not infiltrate this thinking, that it is not tinged with views and perhaps even fantasies about human nature, that these are not projected onto what scientists seek to discover about life and existence with microscope and telescope and through their measurements and calculations. The cultivation of this outlook has gradually led to a thinking that we can say is very intent on developing its passive role. Thinking as it has developed through empirical observation and experimentation has become so abstract that it now no longer allows itself to invoke knowledge or truths from within. This quality of thinking as it has gradually emerged is one which, it seems initially, must dismiss our own whole intrinsic human nature. You see, what we are ourselves must be actively brought forth, externalized, and this can never really be entirely devoid of the engagement of our will. And so, and rightly so in the field of outward inquiry, we have to come to a point where we specifically dismiss the activity of thinking that enables us to become aware of our significance within the whole fabric of the cosmos. In our inquiries, therefore, we have in a sense excluded ourselves, have forbidden ourselves from exercising our own inner activity. And we will see in a moment that what it is right to exclude and prohibit in relation to outward research and inquiry must now be especially cultivated when we seek to inquire into the spiritual and supersensible nature of our being. And then there is also a second element, an aspect of our being that comes to the fore, but which modern scientific inquiry excludes. Its exclusion is alien to us as human beings, though this exclusion facilitates our inquiries into the cosmos. I am thinking of human soul response and feeling. In modern research this human feeling is not allowed to figure. We should remain cold and prosaic. And yet the question remains whether this very feeling might not contain powers that would aid us in knowing the world. On the one hand we can say that our inner human intentionality is at work in our feelings, our human subjectivity, that it is a fount of imagination. But on the other hand, we must also acknowledge that this feeling aspect of our nature, as it appears in daily or academic life, cannot play any particular role in human knowledge. And yet if we remember, as science itself teaches, that the human senses have changed over the course of human evolution, that they have evolved from relatively imperfect conditions to their present state, 
and that in former times they certainly did not convey the world to us in as objective a way as they do now, then we gain an intimation that there might be something in our subjective feeling life that could be drawn forth and developed, like the human senses themselves, leading us from an experience of our own human interiority to a higher grasp of the cosmos. Precisely when we consider how feeling is suppressed within modern science, we can ask whether a higher meaning might not reside in our feeling life, one capable of elaboration and development from it. But when we turn to a third element in our human nature, we can discern in a wonderfully vivid way how we may be propelled onward from the scientific view, however genuinely commendable it is, to something else. I refer here to the will aspect of soul life. Anyone rooted in scientific thinking will know how impossible it is within these parameters to regard world phenomena in any terms other than original or intrinsic necessity. We rigorously connect spatial phenomena with each other and likewise phenomena that succeed one another in time. We connect cause and effect according to unbending and necessary laws. In the rigorous pursuit of science, we know what power is exerted simply by the observation of scientific realities. We know how this idea of universal causal imperatives holds us in its thrall, and how this idea of causality rises in our thinking to meet all the phenomena we investigate. But, then there is human will. This human will which tells us at every moment of our waking lives that what we undertake by inner intention is not causally determined in the same way as all other natural phenomena. This is why someone who observes themselves with an open mind and natural feelings will scarcely do other than ascribe free will to themselves. But if we then adopt scientific thinking, we are compelled to deny this free will. And this is one of the conflicts we find ourselves in today. During the course of these two lectures, we will consider various such conflicts. If we feel them in their full intensity, if we inhabit them, as it were, with our feelings, then it is likely, since we must pay authentic heed both to science on the one hand and to our own experience and self-observation on the other, that they will shake us and disturb us to such a degree that we may despair of ever finding a sound basis in life for discerning the truth. We have to regard such conflicts from the proper human perspective. We have to be able to see that science compels us to refuse to accept our own daily experience and perceptions, and therefore that there must be something somewhere that offers us access to the world other than that irrefutably given by science. Driven headlong into such conflicts by the natural order of things, it becomes an urgent need today for us to acknowledge that we can no longer speak of supersensible spiritual realms as was still possible only a relatively short time ago. 
we need only look back to the first half of the 19th century to find that minds at that time who paid all serious heed to science nevertheless also still pointed to the supersensible dimension of human life, to the realm that reveals to us the divine and our own immortality. They still pointed then to what we might today call the, in quotes, night aspects of human existence. People deserving of great attention and respect pointed to that wondrous yet highly problematic world we enter every night, the world of dreams. They pointed to mysterious connections between the chaotic world of dream images and reality. They showed that our interior organization, especially during illness, is in some respects mirrored in the fantastical pictures of dream, and that healthy human life impinges upon chaotic dream experiences in the form of symbolic images. They described how much that we cannot properly survey in our waking senses is shifted into semi-waking states, and they drew their conclusions from such observations. These things are close to subconscious states of human soul life that express themselves in similar ways, and which many people today are still intent on exploring and cultivating. Everything of this kind that approaches us was in some respects sufficient for early humanity, but can no longer serve us. It cannot do so because the way in which we now observe the natural world outside and around us has changed. If we consider eras when, let's say, people possessed a mystically tinged astrology, we find that they looked upon the sense world in a way very different from the exactitude we nowadays expect of science, and because they were content with sense perceptions of a less clear-cut kind than we nowadays have, they were able to find in mystic realms, in certain semi-conscious states, something that could teach and inform them. This is no longer so for us today, just as little as we are able to draw from the direct information science offers us anything other than questions about the true nature of the human being, so we cannot satisfy our supersensible needs as an earlier humanity did, solely by recourse to science. The supersensible mode of perception that I wish to describe here takes full cognizance of these contemporary needs. It studies how human thinking, feeling and will have developed in consequence of science, And, on the other hand, it asks whether it is possible with the thinking, feeling, and will that modern people have mastered to delve further and with the same clarity as science requires into the supersensible realm. This cannot be done by logical deductions and such like, for here science rightly acknowledges its own limits. But something else can be done we can develop our inner capacities of soul further from the point at which they now stand in ordinary scientific inquiry. And by so doing, we can apply the exactitude we are accustomed to in outer research in the lab or clinic to the development of our own spiritual capacities. I want to examine this, first of all, in relation to the power of thinking itself. The thinking that has become ever more aware 
of its passive role in outward inquiry, and need not deny this, can inwardly intensify its activity. It will then no longer be exact in the way scientists otherwise are when they measure, weigh, etc. But it will be exact in relation to its own procedures, in the same way that the research scientist or a mathematician is accustomed to tracing each step taken in full consciousness. And this is done by replacing old modes of muddled meditation, old modes of muddled self-contemplation, with the supersensible mode of perception I am describing, so that this thinking, instead, develops in a very precise and exact way. There is no scope here to do more than outline this precision of thinking, which I have described in full in my books titled Occult Science and Outline and titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. What we must achieve here, and this will take varying amounts of time, depending on each person's inherent capacities, is to exchange the role of passivity in which thinking otherwise, rightly, surrenders itself to the outer world, for another mode in which we place our whole inner activity of soul into this thinking. We do so, for instance, by a short daily practice, during which we withdraw from our engagement with the outer world to place before the soul some thought or other, its content is irrelevant, and direct all our inner powers of soul to this one thought in inner concentration. As a result, something occurs that has an effect on the development of soul capacities, comparable to efforts, say, to develop the muscles of the arm by exercise. Through use and exercise, the muscles gain strength, and in the same way soul capacities become inwardly stronger and more active by this focus upon a particular thought. We have to do this in a very precise way, surveying each step we take in thinking with the same attention a mathematician will apply to his calculations when solving a problem in geometry or arithmetic. There are various ways to do this. It may sound banal, but you can find the content for your concentration in any old second-hand book you come across, as long as you are quite sure you have never read it before. It does not matter how true the thought is or not, but whether you can survey the thought in its entirety. This is not possible if you simply draw a thought from your memory, since this may have many vague connections and ramifications much that lies in your subconscious or unconscious, so that you cannot be precise when you focus upon it. So, it should be something that is entirely new to you, whose content lies before you in direct and immediate fashion, without any emotional experience connected with it or prior importance for you. What counts is the concentration of soul faculties involved and their consequent strengthening. It is likewise good to avoid any prejudice against seeking the advice of someone who has made some progress in this field and asking them to give you a suitable content. Then also the content will be new to you and you can survey it. Many people fear that this might render them dependent or reliant on the person who provides them with such content, but this is not so. 
In truth, you will be less dependent in this case than if you were to draw the thought content from your own memories and experiences, since this will be connected with all kinds of subconscious elements. Someone who has experience of scholarship or science will do well to use scientific findings as the content of their concentration. In fact, these can turn out to be the most useful material of all. If you do this for a longer period, maybe years, patience and perseverance are required. For some it may take only a few weeks or months to achieve the desired result. Others may need years. Then you can come to the point of inwardly elaborating your thinking in just as exact a way as physicists or chemists apply methods of weighing and measuring to eavesdrop on nature's secrets. Things learned in scientific procedure can be applied to the further development of our own thinking. And at some point or other a significant experience arises. We no longer feel that we think in pictures which depict outer occurrences and realities, a thinking which basically is all the more faithful to these realities, the less inner strength of its own that it possesses, the more it is mere image. No, we add to such thinking an inner experience of thinking itself, of inwardly invigorated thinking. This is an important experience. You can say that in consequence thinking begins to resemble the experience we have when we activate the power of our muscles, when we take hold of something or push against something. It is an experience of reality such as we otherwise have of our breathing or our muscle activity. This inner activity enters into our thinking and inhabits it. And since we have exactly investigated every step upon this path, we experience ourselves with full clarity and awareness in this strengthened, active thinking. It may be objected that science should be based on empiricism and logic, but this does not contradict what I am describing. You see, what we experience in this way possesses full inner clarity, but is at the same time like putting out feelers, not like a snail extending a feeler in the physical world, but putting out feelers in a world of spirit, which, if we have got to this stage, is as yet only there for our feeling apprehension initially. And yet we are right to intimate it. You have the sense that your thinking has changed into a spiritual probing, and if this increasingly develops you will be right to expect that this thinking encounters real spiritual essence just as your finger, if you extend it, will encounter a physical reality. If we live for a period within this inwardly strengthened thinking, it becomes possible for us to gain full self-knowledge, since this form of concentration enables us to apprehend the soul realm as an experienced reality. We can now progress further with this practice by excluding, erasing these thought contents we have been focusing on and which have brought us to the point of having a real soul-probing thinking. We empty our mind, as it were, of these soul contents which we ourselves introduced into our awareness. It is relatively easy to empty your mind in ordinary life. 
for you need only fall asleep. But having accustomed yourself to concentrate fully on a particular thought content, a keen power and energy is needed, especially with this invigorated thinking, this realized thinking, to dismiss such a thought content once again. And yet in the same way as you first developed the strength to concentrate, so now you can also succeed in turn in getting rid of this thought content from your mind. Having achieved this, something arises before the soul, which previously we could possess only in the form of an episodic memory picture. In a new way, our whole inner life rises before the mind's eye, EYE, the life we have passed through on earth since birth or since the time to which we can remember back to in childhood, when we became conscious of ourselves in earthly existence. Usually our life is present to us only in memory pictures, pictures of what we have experienced. But what we now experience through this invigorated thinking is not of the same kind. It rises before us as in a mighty panorama so that what we experienced ten years ago, say, is not present as a pale memory only, but it seems that we return in spirit to that time. Let's say you undertake this exercise when you're fifty and it leads you to what I am describing. Then time opens to draw you back to what perhaps you experienced when you were thirty-five. You walk back through time. It is not just a pale memory of what you did fifteen years ago, but you feel yourselves inhabiting a past experience in a vivid, living way. You stride back through time, and space loses its meaning. Time presents you with a mighty memory tableau, an exact picture of life, a phenomenon which even scientists acknowledge sometimes occurs. For instance, when someone suffers a terrible shock, in drowning and close to death, say, and sees his whole life in images before him for a while, later recalling this with a certain horrified rapture. What occurs in such instances, induced by natural causes, is then really summoned before the soul through practices I have described, revealing a mighty panorama of the whole of one's earthly life in chronological sequence. Only now do we really perceive ourselves in true self-observation. It is easy to distinguish this picture of our inner experience from a mere memory picture. The memory image shows us how other people, natural occurrences or artworks, have impinged on us from without. In a memory picture of this kind, the way in which the outer world approaches us figures more largely. But in the supersensible memory tableau that rises before us, we see more of what issued from ourselves. For instance, if, at a certain moment of our lives, we embarked on a friendship with someone we love, we see in memory how this person approached us, how they spoke to us, what we owe them, and so on. But in the memory tableau we perceive how we ourselves yearned for this person, and how, ultimately, every step we took must inevitably have led to the other whom we had discerned as deeply suited to us. What has formed through the development of our soul forces comes to meet us in this life tableau with exact clarity. 
Many people do not care for such clarity and exactness, since it shows them many things that they would prefer to see in a light other than that of truth. But this is something we must endure, to gaze upon our own inward nature with a fully open mind, even if this inner life must appear to our penetrating inquiry as worthy of reproach. I have called this stage of perception that of imaginative perception or imagination. But we can progress further from this stage, and what we perceive through this memory tableau, we have the powers that actually formed and shaped us as a human being. As we stand before this panorama, we recognize that forces develop within us that shape the substances of our physical body. In childhood especially, forces developed, which after birth and up to around the age of seven, modeled and shaped what was at first an unformed mass of brain and nerve substance. We cease to ascribe what inwardly shapes us to forces that pertain only to material substances. Gazing upon this memory tableau, we cease to think this, seeing how the contents of this tableau, which are themselves powers, stream into all our forces of nutrition and respiration and into our blood circulation. Without such powers no blood would pulse in us, no breathing could occur. We come to discern, in fact, that our inner being is spirit-soul in nature. What thus dawns on us can best be characterized with a comparison. Imagine that you are walking upon ground that has been softened by rain, and everywhere you go you see tracks or footprints made by passing people or wheels. If we imagine that an inhabitant of the moon came to earth and saw the state of the ground, but had not yet caught sight of any people, he might ascribe these tracks to various forces at work in the earth itself, forces that had somehow churned up the earth and left these traces. Such a moon being could perhaps analyze the earth in a search for the forces that had produced these markings. Of course, we know in reality that they are made by passing people or vehicles. Someone who understands the matters I have been describing will not therefore look with any less reverence and wonder upon the brain's convolutions. But just as we know that footprints are made by people and do not originate from the forces of the earth itself, so we can also realize that these furrows in the brain do not derive from forces inherent in the brain's material substance. Instead, the human being's spirit soul that we can apprehend as I described, works upon the brain to create these furrows. That is the key thing, to recognize our own spirit-soul being, to direct our I-E-Y-E of soul to the spirit-soul and its manifestation in outward life. And now we can go further. Having first focused on a particular thought content, strengthening our own inner activity, then emptying the mind, so that instead of the pictures we ourselves form, the whole content of our life rises before us. We can now also remove this memory tableau from our consciousness again, just as previously we erased a single thought and emptied the mind of it. And now 
we can learn to apply an intense strength to extinguish from the mind once more what we first perceived in enhanced self-observation as our spirit-soul being. In doing so, we are extinguishing nothing less than our own inner soul life, extinguishing something outward by our own volition was what we first learned to do in concentration. Then we learned to direct our inner gaze to our own spirit soul, the latter filling the whole memory tableau. If we now succeed in extinguishing this tableau itself, then what I call a truly, in quotes, empty mind is achieved. Previously, we lived in the memory tableau or in what we ourselves placed before the soul. Now something else arises. We have suppressed what lived within ourselves. And now we expose or offer our empty consciousness to the world. This is extraordinarily important for the soul's experience. Basically, I can only metaphorically describe what happens to the soul in consequence when we invoke a strong inner power to extinguish our own soul life. We need remember only how someone whose outer sense impressions gradually fall silent, in whom sight, hearing, perhaps also definite touch, cease, sinks into a state that closely resembles that of sleep. But when we extinguish our own soul content, though our mind is emptied, we do not sleep. We enter a state I would call that of, quote, mere wakefulness, close quote, wakefulness with an empty mind. We can perhaps picture this empty mind or consciousness as follows. Imagine a big modern city with all its noise and hubbub. You can leave it behind so that everything grows ever quieter around you. Then perhaps you reach a wood and walk deeper into it, a complete contrast to the noise of the city. Complete silence and stillness surrounds you. But now I must resort to a banal metaphor to describe what I need to. The question is this, can this peace and stillness progress still further? Let's call this peace and stillness zero in relation to the outer world. Now, assume you have a certain amount of capital, but you spend it until there is nothing left. Can you go on spending? It may not be desirable, but many do it nevertheless. They go into debt. Then they have less than nothing, and can have less and less than nothing. Quietness and stillness can be thought of in the same sort of terms. Quiet, equal to the zero point of wakefulness in the world, can be driven further into a kind of negative state, giving rise to an excess of stillness and peace. This is the experience of someone who extinguishes their own soul content. They enter into a state of negative inner quiet that lies below the zero point. Intensified, enhanced Stillness of soul arises, although we remain fully awake. But this cannot be achieved unless it is accompanied by something else. It can only be achieved if a certain state connected with pictorial thoughts, also of our own self, is felt to pass over into another condition. Someone who initially feels and perceives the supersensible within their own self is in a certain state of well-being, of complacency even, and inner happiness, as has been remarked by various religions, 
when they point to the supersensible realm and at the same time describe the happiness granted to those who inwardly experience it. Until we reach the point of extinguishing our own inner life, we can experience a certain well-being, an enhanced state of happiness. But the moment we enter this intensified stillness of the soul, inner well-being is replaced by inner pain, inner renunciation, of a kind we have not previously known, at the fact that we are now far removed from things we were previously very much connected with, far removed not only from a sense of inhabiting our own body, but also far removed from our own experiences since birth. This is a renunciation that intensifies into a huge pain of the soul. Many shy away from persevering further at this stage. They do not find the courage to make the transition from a certain low-level clairvoyance, extinguishing the content of their own soul, to enter a state of mind where this inner stillness exists that I described. But if we push on further here with full consciousness, then imagination starts to be replaced by what I called inspiration in the books I have referred to here, though I beg you not to take offense at the terminology, the experience of a real world of spirit. Having first extinguished the sense world and having created an empty mind in unspeakable soul pain, the outer world of spirit comes to meet you. In inspiration, you become aware that a world of spirit surrounds you in the same way the sense world surrounds your outward senses. And the first thing we perceive in this world of spirit is our own pre-earthly existence. In the same way that ordinary memory shows us past experiences in life, so now a cosmic memory is granted us. We look back into pre-earthly experiences, seeing our own nature as soul-spirit being in a world of pure spirit before we descended to birth for this current life. We see how our spiritual being took a hand in shaping our own body. Thus we look back into the spiritual, eternal aspect of human nature, to what becomes apparent to us as pre-earthly existence. And now we know that this existence is not dependent on the birth and death of the physical body, for it is what existed prior to birth, prior to conception, and what first made our material, genetic, physical body into the human being we are. Only now do we gain a true concept also of physical heredity, by understanding that supersensible forces play into it, and that we acquire these from the purely spiritual world. We now feel connected to this world as we feel connected in earthly life with the physical world. And now we become aware that despite the great advances humanity has made in its evolution, many things have also been lost that were once intrinsic to older instinctive outlooks that are no longer any use to us today. In early times people had perception of this pre-earthly life, as well as of human immortality which we will come on to speak of shortly. You see, in olden times, people saw and understood eternity in a twofold way. Nowadays we speak, and our language itself has only this term, of the soul's immortality. But once upon a time, 
people spoke of unbornhood, and some older languages still retain this idea as the other aspect of the human soul's immortality. Times have changed. People nowadays are interested in what happens to the human soul after death, since it still lies ahead of them. They are much less interested in any existence prior to birth or conception, since it is past, in quotes, and they do, after all, now exist. But true insight into human immortality can only develop if we consider both aspects of eternity, both immortality and unbornhood. But to connect with the latter, and to do so through exact clairvoyance, a third element is needed. Really, we feel ourselves more wholly human if our sense of things is not entirely absorbed by earthly life. You see, the pre-earthly life we can learn to perceive enters us in pictorial form and augments our sense of our humanity, making us fully human. This imbues our feeling with something like an inner light. And we know that we have now developed our sensibility, our feeling, into a sense organ for the spirit. But we must go beyond this, and must also be able to make the will element into an organ of perception for the spirit. To this end, something must imbue human perception that is otherwise, rightly, not regarded as a power of perception by those who would be seen as serious researchers. We only become aware that it is in fact a power of perception when we enter supersensible realms. I mean the power of love. We need only begin to develop this power, a power of love higher than the love that nature endows us with, the latter, of course, very significant for natural and human life. As I must describe them, the first steps in developing higher love in human life may seem paradoxical to you. If fully conscious of each step you take on this path, you try to feel the world differently from how you usually feel it, then you arrive at this higher love. Let us assume that you undertake to review each day in the evening before you go to sleep, starting with the last thing that happened in the evening and picturing it as precisely as possible. Then, in the same way, you work backward to the next last occurrence, then the one before that, and so on, back to the morning, surveying your whole day. This is a process that requires far more inner energy than simple picturing a single occurrence more or less vividly. This reversal of thinking is the important thing here. Usually we regard what happens in advancing chronological order, one thing after another as they happened. But by the exercise I'm describing here, we turn all life on its head. We think and feel what has happened in the opposite order from how it happened. We can practice this with the events of each day, as I suggested, and will need only a few minutes to do so. But there is another way to do it also. Try to picture the progress of a play in reverse, for instance, starting with the fifth act, then working back to the fourth, the third, and so on to the beginning. Or imagine a melody in which the sequence of notes is reversed. By inwardly experiencing such things, you will find how your inner apprehension frees itself from the natural outward course of events, 
so that you become ever more independent of it. But despite increasingly individualizing ourselves by this means, developing ever greater autonomy, we also learn to give ourselves in full consciousness to the other, to outward life. Only now do we become aware that the more we practice this and develop fully conscious surrender to another being, the greater does our selflessness and selfless love grow. In this way we gain a sense of how this, quote, not living in ourselves, close quote, but instead, quote, living in another being, close quote, this passage from our own being into the other grows ever stronger. And then the faculties of imagination and inspiration we have first developed can be joined by true intuitive immersion in something other than us. We arrive at the power of intuition no longer only experiencing ourselves now, but while retaining our full individualization, learning nevertheless to experience the other in all selflessness. Here love becomes something that gradually enables us to look still further back into the pre-earthly life of the spirit. Just as we look back on the past events of this present life, so by intensifying love in this way, we learn to look back upon former lives on earth, discerning human life to be a sequence of successive lives on earth. In the next lecture I will touch on the fact that these successive lives began at a certain point and will one day end. And human life in its entirety is composed of this succession of lives, between each of which lie lives of purely spiritual existence between death and a new birth. Death, too, you see, is something we learn to see in its true significance through this enhanced, uplifted love, which becomes a power of perception and knowledge. Having advanced through imagination and inspiration to the point where these enhanced inner powers become capable of spiritual love, we come to the following experience in direct, exact clairvoyance we experience ourselves spiritually without our body, outside our body. It really does become possible for the soul to experience emerging from the body in, if I can say this, a tangible way. Having experienced this spiritual realm outside the body through, in quotes, clairvoyant knowledge, we know what it means to lay aside our body at death to pass through the gate of death into new spiritual life. Thus, at the third stage of development, that of exact clairvoyance, we come to understand the meaning of death and thus also the significance of human immortality. The mode of supersensible perception I am concerned with here aims to introduce into human cognitive faculties something that proceeds step by step and very exactly Scientists apply exactitude to outer experimentation, outer observation. They try to discover the secrets of phenomena through precise processes of comparative weighing, measuring, and calculation. Spiritual scientists apply the same kind of exactitude to the development of their own soul faculties, what they make of themselves so that a world of spirit and with it the eternal essence of the human being, of human immortality, 
appears before the soul is done with exactitude, as Goethe says. At every step that a spiritual investigator takes, so that the spiritual world will at last lie spread before his eye of soul, EYE, he feels as much conscientious responsibility for his discoveries as otherwise only mathematicians feel for the steps involved in their calculations. The latter have to be able to survey and note each calculation in full clarity, and similarly the spiritual investigator must survey with great exactitude what he makes of his own powers of perception. And then he will know that he has shaped an inner eye, E-Y-E, from the soul with the same inward necessity as nature configures a physical eye from the body. He knows that he is as entitled to speak of worlds of spirit as of physical sense worlds perceived by the physical eye. Thus, spiritual research of this kind will meet the demands implicit in modern science. The science is a magnificent achievement that spiritual science does not in the least oppose, but which it seeks only to develop further. I very well know that anyone nowadays who wants to promote a cause, for whatever motive, enhances its importance by claiming that it is a contemporary need. That was not my aim, nor will it be in the next lecture. On the contrary, I will try to show that these contemporary needs already exist, and that the science of the Spirit seeks at every step to meet them. Spiritual investigators, of the kind I mean, do not wish to be dilettantes in their view of nature, but rather seek to advance science in a rigorous and conscientious way. They employ a truly exact clairvoyance to describe a world of spirit. But at the same time they are clear that interpreting life by dissecting the corpse from which it has fled, or turning a telescope toward the depths of space, develops human faculties that accord only with the microscope or telescope. These faculties also have an inner life that such instruments constrain and deny. When we dissect the human corpse, we can perceive this truth, that nature did not directly create the person who lived in it, but rather this body was fashioned by the human soul that has now departed from it. We conclude the existence of the human soul from its physical outcome that lies before us. It would be lunacy to assert that the forms and powers embodied in the human being did not originate in something that preceded this person's current existence. All that we hold back or retain as we investigate dead nature with the powers whose inner activity is rightly suppressed can become the potential to further develop these human soul forces. Just as the seed lies invisibly below the earth after it has been planted, it grows forth into a plant. So we plant a seed in the soul, specifically if we are conscientious natural scientists. The seed of imaginative, inspired, and intuitive perception rests within us if we are serious investigators. We need only develop it. And then we can know that just as modern science meets contemporary needs, so also 
does supersensible inquiry. It can be said that all who speak in the spirit of natural science also speak in the spirit of supersensible research, except that they do not know this. Today it is an unconscious yearning deep within many people, as we will see in the next lecture, to unfold supersensible inquiry from this seed within. I'd like to remind those who on a supposed scientific footing oppose this spiritual inquiry of a well-known saying that Goethe puts into the mouth of his Faust, quote, folk never feel the devil's presence, even if he has them by the throat, close quote. If we recognize that any scientist who investigates the natural world conscientiously is already unconsciously uttering the spirit, then we can reverse this saying as follows. There are many who do not wish to acknowledge the spirit when it speaks to them, although they continually give expression to it in their utterances. The seed of supersensible vision is today already far more widespread than people think, but it must be developed. The need for it to be developed is truly apparent in the grave events of our time. Next time I will go into more detail, as I said, but I'd like to end by referring to various stark signs of catastrophe that threaten all humanity from which it can dawn on us that we face grave tasks and challenges, and that surmounting them will be a huge challenge to people of the near future. These grave outward aspects with which the world regards us today, the world of humankind especially, point to the need for inner gravity in response. And it is of this inner gravity that I wish to speak today in directing our human sensibility to spiritual powers intrinsic to us, the powers that essentially comprise our nature. You see, while people today need to exert the most vigorous outward powers to meet the grave events that face us across the globe, they will also need great inner courage. We can, though, only find these powers and this courage by consciously encompassing our inmost being, not just theoretically, but with practical knowledge, feeling, and will. And this in turn can be achieved if we recognize the source from which our being in reality originates, the wellspring of the Spirit. Increasingly, and not only theoretically, but practically, we should learn to perceive and experience the human being as Spirit, and Spirit as the only source of our true fulfillment. Our highest powers and our greatest courage can come to us only from the Spirit, in other words, from the realm of the supersensible. The end of Lecture 9